0: Hi, I'm Michael and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast For each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Welcome to week two of our Summer Impossible season. In this episode, we are beginning our exploration of the Mission Impossible franchise with Mission Impossible, the 1996 film written by David Kep and Robert Towne, directed by Brian De Palma, based on the TV show of the same name, created by Bruce Geller. I'm joined by the Beyond Screenplay team, Trisha Arand.
2: Hello, everyone.
0: Brian Bittner. Hello, 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 hello. (laughs) (laughs) And Alex Cayetos. Hi. Uh, Okay, so like I said, week two of our Summer Impossible season. Last week, we did Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And now we are diving into the Mission Impossible franchise, which I'm very, very excited about. I looked it up because I was like, this has been a successful franchise, right? And it's been $3.5 billion successful. Yeah. It's done pretty it did well. Okay. Uh, and one of the things I'm excited to dive into as we go across this whole franchise leading up to Dead Reckoning is kind of tracking the evolution of this IP because it's, it's changed a lot in a really interesting way, I think, where we're starting off in this movie where it's very much kind of spy thriller espionage like leaning into the sort of taking itself seriously thing and by the end we have like summer action adventures for the whole family with basically no heists in them and weirdly i enjoy every step of that journey parentheses we'll talk about that later (laughs) asterisks rather (laughs) so starting here at the beginning I loved this movie as a kid. I was obsessed with it. I did not understand what was happening uh, as a kid. No. To this day, 90%, I think, yeah. is the ceiling yeah. of what I'm going to understand. <laughs> kind of. uh, but, like, I love it. Like I said, it's a spy movie. It takes itself seriously, it kind of tries to architect some real twisty noir stuff, which maybe isn't. Uh, a surprise when you have the screenwriter of Chinatown working on it, which I didn't understand as a child. Uh, So that's pretty cool. It has the best high sequence of all time, definitely of the franchise, I think. It has a really distinct texture and style. We got the Brian De of it, which we got several questions about on Patreon. We're going to dive into that, but we got Dutch angles and Kind of surreal dream moments. Yeah. It's kind of Split wild. Right. Him. Yeah. <laughs> uh great action, fun stunts, the scale of which has been dwarfed over time as the franchise has continued, but still some like cool like Ethan jumping out of the like the fish tank restaurant oh, is still yeah. one of the coolest mm-hmm. That like as a kid I would just try to jump in slow motion and like recreate because <laughs> it's so cool. I mean the train finale is the still amazing. Season, yeah. yeah. So so many things um very excited to get into it hear everyone's thoughts as we said it's a complicated plot and people mumble whisper a lot of the details and so like they're just if when i watch it with subtitles i was like oh this is a whole other thing that i didn't understand and i'm sure no one did uh, but very excited to kick this all off trisha i know you like the mission impossibles missions impossible missions impossible.
2: Yeah, you got Take it. it away.
0: Nothing's going to sound right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh
2: yes. So this was on my I believe pretty high up on my favorite films of the 90s list. Um I really really love this movie. I've seen it uh, countless times. Um I think by now I understand the plot, but it doesn't matter truly. Like it doesn't <laughs> doesn't matter. Um it's so fun. Like This was, you know, you said a couple times, Michael, that it takes itself seriously, and I know what you mean in the sense that it's, like, leaning into spy, like, thriller tropes, like, as hard as it can go without any sense of irony, right? So, yes, but it is also kind of campy, right? That's the De of it, and I think that that works, like, super well with this material. Like, the convoluted plot and the character relationships like it's it's splashy it's fun it's sexy it's just it is it's De Palma kind of through and through and that in itself is kind of campy so you know it it is the the you know very very mid-90s pre-9-11 like action movies fun like type of uh, installment in this franchise. And I just adore that tone. And I think it works like super well in this movie. Um, yeah, it's great. It's borrowing from all the other action movies of the time and from some of De Palma's own like erotic thrillers and like other thrillers that uh, De Palma made. And so I just, I I kind of love where it sits. And to your point, this is not where the franchise stays. Um, I think that that is fascinating. But yeah, I just adore this piece of it for what it is. It's so good and just, uh, I don't know. It's got these amazingly envisioned sequences, these really fun performances. It just has stylish as hell. Um, And I I don't know, it just kind of sets this like off and running feeling to what this sort of modern interpretation of this, you know, fairly old TV show at that point could be. So can't praise it highly enough uh, and can't wait to dive in. Yeah. Awesome. From the ceiling. Uh-huh. Through a laser net without <laughs> yes. making any noise. Without making any yeah.
0: noise. Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, awesome. Okay. Brian, what are your thoughts? Um, Yeah, this movie came out on my 14th birthday.
2: Aw, uh, happy birthday, <laughs> Brian. <laughs>
1: oh, thank you. That I mean, was a while ago. Um, but uh, <laughs> I saw it in the theater and... Fourteen-year-old me, who loved The Rock and Face Off and Con Air, thought this movie was a little silly. Like, uh, I was just like the whole the whole helicopter thing at the sure. end. I was just like, it's too much, you know. Like, I, it just, it just, whatever, you know. This was too much.
2: This was too much f- compared to Face Off.
1: Well, it's like it's like those movies are operating on this like we're a cartoon the whole time right, kind right. of thing, and this mm-hmm. movie is going back and forth between like. Big bombastic action and like we're gonna whisper and talk about this stuff. Um and then so then I rewatched it. I did a, a big column comparing the mission franchise to the Born franchise. So I rewatched everything that existed at that point um, and and then I found Mission Impossible 1 to be a little boring honestly I was just kind of the plot stuff where I'm just kind of like alright we I don't really know what this is and who like who's doing what and all this kind of stuff right so I was just like oh it's not engaging me and I know it's a solid movie it, it didn't did not get the best reviews um, in 96 but I mean I still appreciate that it's a solid movie and there's a lot of really good stuff here and I'm not here to like crap on this movie at all um, but yeah I think I'm just like not a huge fan of the, of the De Palma directing there's kind of like a i think there's like a draggy energy to the editing that doesn't really work for me you
2: are so wrong and then, <laughs> how dare and,
1: and then some of the like the the push-ins and the mm. split focus things and stuff i'm just like i don't know it feels like it's trying to be a 1960s tv show in a way that a 1990s movie shouldn't be again to me um but uh, but again, I think it's a really solid movie. The heist sequence is incredible, obviously, and there's a lot of there's a lot of really good stuff here. I think it's just a movie for I love the Mission Impossible franchise, like everything from three on. I'm I'm a fan of, um, but this one just yeah, I just it could never quite click with me. But I'm I'm here to talk about all the good stuff here and, and all of the things that launched the whole franchise. But you know, get that off my chest for now, and then we can we can be happy. Ooh, boy, about this
2: movie. I didn't know we had any of you in the room.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I have a suspicion that brian may not be alone here oh, well, and, no. and so i i think what's also going to be really fun for me as we talk about all these is hearing which ones people like more right. and like less and respond to in different ways uh all
1: I know, of Trisha, yes the answer for you because you saw something <laughs> i know ghost protocol is my favorite i don't think it's anyone's favorite <laughs> like i might ghost be the protocol is your the favorite okay all yeah. right yeah okay.
2: you're right okay so,
1: so we're going to talk
0: about this because i think this is yeah. true like i i rewatched mission impossible with my mother who had similar feelings i would say to brian i'm just like Mm. that was kind of boring and i feel like i've heard that from other people too so i think that's another thing just so interesting about this franchise and how it evolves is that uh, yeah just tracking which ones people like and for what reasons will be interesting i will go on record saying that this one is my favorite so we're getting that out of the way alex what about you
3: (laughs) so i saw this when i was a little younger than brian and i think that both made it even more confusing and indecipherable, but also I, I was less, I guess, judgmental of anything I saw at, at whatever age I saw this at. So I was just taking it in. And what I did take in from this movie, it was very memorable. Like, I, I it was dark. In it, and there's, there was disturbing stuff in it. I mean, it opens up with a guy's face getting impaled on an elevator spike, right. whatever it's those are. It's pretty gruesome. Like, like, Move! You know, it, Move, Amelia. Yeah, lots, lots of blood in that opening kind of disastrous heist. So as, as you know, a 10-year-old or whatever, whenever I saw this, it was like, gave me these weird, dark vibes, weird uh, sexual tension energy with, like, random characters like Max. Like, what, why is she smiling <laughs> like that at him? Like, what's happening now? And so it was, it was a really interesting experience of both, yeah, just exposing my like childhood brain to these like really interesting De Palma vibes, which were both disturbing and intriguing. And then also just, you know, hitting that aspiring filmmaker part of me like so hard with the high sequence, with the train finale, just with so many memorable, iconic moments, Uh, it, it definitely just stuck in my brain. And like, you know, is one of those unconscious influences just throughout all my childhood high school wanting to make little movies and stuff mission impossible the first one is definitely part of the like bag of tricks i was pulling out of and the soundtrack and everything so it definitely had a big influence on me but i am a little bit in the brian camp of when i go back and rewatch it i i always hope that it's like i'm an adult now it's gonna make so much more sense and it's gonna be like it's gonna really click together and like be tight and awesome and it's still like, no, this is like not really well done the way they're giving me the information in this movie. like it's, I feel like they're not quite controlling the information in the way that I want and like reveals are like half reveals. Like when Tom Cruise yeah. is, is putting together that it's Jim Phelps, but like in his head, but he's like, got like, yeah, to talk yeah, about, about that. We have to talk about that. It's confusing that
2: as, as, as hell. hell.
3: <laughs> like it's kind of cool but it's also like it's i feel like you're not making it for an audience at that point like who is this for (laughs) like so yeah there's a lot of strange choices in this movie that just do distance me from it and keep it from being like an all-time favorite for me but there's i mean yeah there's individual scenes and sequences that are all-time favorite scenes and sequences and once again were hugely inspirational and influential on me as a a aspiring filmmaker so yeah, cannot deny its influence. But yeah, in the franchise at this point, I think I am on I am on more of the team, give me the big fun action blockbuster. You know. It's not
2: Ghost Protocol, though, is it your favorite?
3: Oh no, Fallout is my favorite right now. Okay, and great. We're okay. gonna revisit, we're gonna revisit <laughs> the movies and we'll see if that holds up. But in my like working memory, Fallout is my current favorite. Nice. Okay. And I think it's like Michael's least favorite, maybe.
0: So this is gonna be interesting. We'll see. Uh, we'll talk about it. It's, yeah. It's, we'll talk about it all Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, well, yeah, so let's so let's dive in. I feel like we have a nice spectrum set up here and lots of angles to hit everything from. The opening of this movie, well, so we have the little weird opening where it's like, you know, they're doing this sting operation and Emmanuel bear is on the... Like, that whole thing confused me as a child so much. The Sexy, Kios. bloody, dead girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Uh,
2: like, <laughs> I, sorry, we're not just gonna brush past the cold opener. I mean, right? because we yeah, yeah, yeah. it's doing narrative work. I just want to be super right. clear about that. Yeah. Like, actually, quite a bit of narrative work. It's very deft. Like, we have, I don't know. You talked, Alex, you mentioned the control of information, and it does get mm-hmm. messy later. I fully agree. But I think right here at the beginning, where it sets up like Emilio Estevez is sitting there, he's watching this scene unfold. We know. The way that he's commenting on it we know that it's some kind of sting operation we know that something is going on with the emmanuel bayard character because he's like she's been under too long come on come on where there's a time ticking clock thing that's being established um it's interesting you see uh the hannah character in her costume behind emilio estevez right Um, whose name is Jack in this movie, Um, she's standing there behind Jack, and then you see her go into the room, right? So it kind of – it's revealing the information little by little about who IMF is and, like, the kind of thing that they do. And then, of course, you have the wonderful mask reveal when we see that it was Tom Cruise all along – and then you have, like, the first hints of the love triangle um, when he, like, goes to wake her up because he's worried about her, whatever. So, I don't know. I I appreciate the cold open. Um, I think it actually is doing, like, neater narrative work and with a lighter touch than it does almost at any other point in the movie. Like, the scene immediately after that, where they're in Prague, and, well, the scene immediately after that is when... Jim Phelps, John Voight's character, is on the airplane, and we hear, like, here's what your mission is. After that, they're in the safe house in Prague, and that scene, I feel like, is clunky by comparison to meeting the team at the earlier sting operation in the cold open. Like, that one feels like, hey, can we talk about this coffee you made? I don't know about this. This is better Uh, than that that sludge you made in that barn. Leave my wife's coffee alone. Like...
1: (laughs) I'm a character. Here are my character things. (laughs) Look look at the a team.
2: Right, exactly. Mm, Like that one feels... Right. But (laughs) the cold open actually is doing all of that same kind of work, just again with a much lighter touch. And it feels like it's all a part of action that's happening as opposed to this like very stagnant expository scene that we get later.
3: And the cold open I think does do what a good cold open does, which is establish kind of a tone and a feel for the whole movie. Because like that is that's you know when i remember watching this as a kid right off the bat there is that dark that there's kind of a darkness i mean she's bloody there's a bloody dead woman on a bed like that's that's not what you'd see in like yeah uh ghost protocol or <laughs> like that's not sure. a brad bird image that's a De Palma <laughs> image and even when claire like wakes up you know i feel like the way you know the like the sexual tension of like almost bloody dead caresses girl, his like, like hand yeah. with her
0: lips as yeah, he's like exactly. trying to wake her it's from like, a yeah. coma. it feels
3: very like european like <laughs> yeah. it, it doesn't feel like an american film it feels there's this kind of like erotic european energy going on there uh so yeah i think i think it's, it is a great cold open because it does establish like this is what this mission impossible movie is is kind of all contained here
0: yeah yeah, confuses children right out of the gate for sure. Exactly, <laughs> American children In expecting like
3: room. a summer blockbuster are like, right. "What the hell am I looking right. at?" Right. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. And so, so then we we do have the, the the planning of the first heist after we have the you know the spoiler credits sequence and Jim gets his thing. As you were saying, Trisha, that the team building uh, section is very clunky or just feels very much like this was written to be lines and a script and weird, but it is doing all the things. Something that I thought was kind of remarkable throughout watching this movie actually is technology and the role technology plays and maybe just how old this movie is, such that they're doing a briefing and there's no holograms and there's no touch screens where people are doing stuff. Right. It's like there's Here's a There's a map. There's a map. <laughs> and people have pieces of paper and pens yeah. and stuff. And like they could have gone more high-tech i feel like even for then and so there was something kind of grounded and interesting and sort of touching at realism there that i that i appreciated but overall what i was thinking during this first heist was i was thinking back to our conversation that we just had recently about speed in our patron exclusive episode where speed opens with kind of like we were saying a little short film that introduces a whole bunch of the elements, puts the antagonist in the room with the protagonist and follows it through to its completion. And it feels like a whole solid thing. This opening feels similar to me. Like we get to watch a heist, we get to know this team. And we go on this whole complete arc and journey where they, you know, run into different obstacles, overcome them. Seems like they've done it but then there's a twist and it screws everything up and it sends us into you know the the second act of the movie and so i was just kind of remarking um to myself in my head i guess (laughs) uh, about how cool that is and i think why especially the first half of this movie does pull me in because like right off the bat we're doing heisty spy things and it's really Mm -hmm. fun and it's setting up uh, the sort of twist reveal that we're going to get shortly, which is like there was another team. This was a mole operation. Like there's so many layers of things happening, and it's just effortless and fun. I love it.
1: Yeah, I, I think the um, one of our patrons, Eric Slesser, said you know asked us what we thought about killing the team off at the beginning, basically. And I think it's it's a really cool move because it first of all, sets the tone of the movie. Like, this is going to be a movie where this happens. You know, it's not just going to be like, oh, fun. Like you said, like, no one's going to die. It's going to be safe, you know. Um, and it gives us a major problem and a hook to cling to. Cling to. You know, I, I think that for me, where I lean more into the Mission franchise is when it's personal, which is why I love kind of Jules being introduced in in um, the third movie. Um, is just sort of like, oh man, like these these characters really care about something, you know? And I think that like the, the whole operation was a mole hunt scene is such a good hook into the rest of the movie. Cause he's like, he's like, these were my, Partners, these are like my best friends, and and you know, proto agent Smith, you just like killed let them all die because <laughs> <laughs> there's a mole deep in the thing. You want to dance with the devil? Go ahead. <laughs> um, but uh, but like it's it's such a cool, like, oh man, like this just got like okay, yes, we're going to be talking about like we have to steal a list because this and da da da, and I have the real list and da da da, but it's like when it's just. I'm pissed off because you let my friends die. I'm like, yeah, like I'm just like more emotionally invested in the movie. And I think like that's a really cool hook into the into the rest of the movie from from the end of Act One, I guess.
2: Yeah. Tom Cruise's performance when he's standing in that phone booth, like when he calls Kittredge on the phone and he's all shaken up and everything um, is just like burned into my brain where he's like he's literally kind of shaking Mm. and. He's the way he's struggling the thing. It's, yeah, on the exactly. Th- he's got the thing in his mouth. Iconic, like, right? yeah. Iconic. And he's like dead. They're all dead. Like mm-hmm. it's it's amazing. Um, but I just want to shout out. Um, so our friend Al Horner of Script Apart podcast interviewed David kep about this screenplay. So if you haven't listened to that episode on this movie, like definitely go ahead and listen to it. But um, on that episode, David kep was talking about. It was De Palma's idea to kill the whole team because they really struggled with this script. Um, like there was an original script by David Kep, I believe. He was rewriting somebody. He did a big rewrite and then he got fired and then Robert Town got brought on. And then they brought David Kep back at, back into it. Like they flew him to Europe and they were like, okay, come back and fix it again, David Kep. And Steve
1: Zalian has a story credit on this. Oh, yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, Yeah, Steve Zalian. Yeah. So it seemed like it was kind of being cobbled together from a variety of places. And all of it was after De Palma was on board. So De Palma brought his own sensibility to this. And they were really trying to solve this issue of, you know, the original Mission Impossible series is about a team It's always been, like, sort of an ensemble idea where there's people pulling off a heist, essentially. Um, The original series was kind of a heist thing. That's what the Impossible Mission Force does. They do heists. Um, They're supposed to be invisible, right? You're supposed to never know they were there. That's their whole thing. And the idea was, like, how do we create a compelling thing, Uh, like meeting the team or, like, getting attached to the team if the team's already here, and then it was De Palma that was like, well, kill everybody, then we'll have a new team. And it, it really works in this and it creates the stakes that you're talking about, Brian. Um, but yeah, really strongly recommend you can kind of, David Kep talks very frankly on that podcast about the evolution of how all of it came together. And the scene that I was critiquing earlier about where they're in Prague at the safe house and preparing for that Prague mission uh, that feels very expository. I I think David Kett mentions on that podcast that it was a pretty late edition mm-hmm. um, as well, where it was like they wanted the cold open to do all the work or they wanted the prog mission to do all the narrative work. And they just found that there wasn't enough. There wasn't quite enough to get us really attached to all of these characters. So they they wrote in that scene. And I, I think it's smart. I mean, I don't like the scene where they're all at the table, but the the different little briefings where it's like, you know, Jack is talking to, um, uh, Kristen Scott Thomas's character and talking her through the tech and then asking, flirting with her, right. Asking her out on a date. And, um, they're looking at the map with Jim and Claire and, um, Oh, take Hannah drive around. There's all these little side streets in this area. I think those little sort of side things actually work really well to set up the, the team. Um, and then, of course, the mission itself does a lot of, toward that, where, as you mentioned, Michael, they're being really collaborative and they're problem solving in different ways.
3: Yeah, I was going to say the mission itself is mm-hmm. just so much fun to watch unfold, and you get to see the dynamics between the, you know, Kristen Stott, Scott Thomas and the T- Tom Cruise. Like they're they're having to pose as a, you know, a date uh, and work together. But there's also, of course, because it's a diploma movie, you know, how much of this is all acting and how much of this is a little bit of actual they're having some fun flirtiness pretending to kiss in this alleyway. And and so I just think there's there's a lot of just fun, yeah, character dynamics that come out during the heist where yeah, we we get a little bit of setup, but it's really the heist that I guess we get to know the characters through
0: their actions in the heist. There's also some really cool filmmaking stuff happening there. Like the the POV cam where like you are Ethan Hunt is interesting. It kinda of, like that's not my favorite choice, but there are these other moments where just the way the whole, uh, gala or whatever this is, is shot. And like the geography of it, you understand really well. And then there's that fun part where they go into the office, you know, they sneak or they, they convince the the guard because Emilio up, uploads the ID. And so then they can get through the door and they're like making banter about Emilio, but they know that anyway, they get in. And then once things go wrong, there's that cool, like a long take, like Life Aquatic shot, basically, where you're seeing profile, you see them in the little office, and then the camera moves through the wall to see Emilio in the elevator while it's moving to come back to see Glitzen. So little things like that, that I feel like it's just really cool. And I just really like that this movie goes for, yeah, interesting ways of shooting these things all the way up to, as you said, Brian, there's the, you know, the... <laughs> the fake agent smith what's his name kittredge That's right kittredge where like once kittredge gets on his role of like you know you want to dance with the devil you're gonna do it in hell blah blah, blah. the camera is in his lap like you can see <laughs> yeah. up his nose like it's yeah. the lowest possible angle you can get <laughs> the camera was sick that day so they said just hold this just hold this <laughs> <laughs> and so it's ridiculous but i also kind of love how extreme it is and i guess that Going back to what you're saying, Truth, about the, the campiness of it, where it's yeah. seen mm-hmm. as super serious and like the twist that's just happened, I feel like was really well executed. Where they, you know, this other team was hiding in plain sight and suddenly you're realizing it as Ethan's realizing it. And so and then the camera's all Dutch and things are going crazy. So it's weird and over the top, but also feels right for the psychology of the character. And I like that. I just think it's really well done and something that I do miss. In later Mission Impossible, so I feel like that's, that's something that's special about this one.
1: I think another thing that I do like about the the directing in this movie is the the use of like shadows and people not being able to quite see things, right? So we have the gate stabbing uh, <laughs> sequence, <laughs> yeah. and then we have um, the tom cruise as john voight on the plane and both of those are like the camera is kind of like far away from an angle and slowly moving towards the scene and we're not quite seeing what's going on and and people are kind of obscured in shadow a little bit and i think there's almost like a horror movie vibe that it gives you it's just like it gives you the right kind of anxiety in those moments and that's that's like one of the style things in this movie where i was like oh yeah there i like that one and actually, you know, in defense of the
3: POV shot in the opening heist, I actually really like that use of POV. I, I usually don't like that in films. I think it, it's really weird and distracting to have that kind of eye contact. But there's something really fun of getting to almost like role play as Ethan role playing in that moment. <laughs> and and you get the fun eye contact with, yeah, Kristen Scott Thomas as she finds him at the party and it's like, this way, you know. Oh, hello, darling. You know, and and then you get to see the intimacy of her, like side talking out of her mouth, like oh, in pocket over there. And I just, I just, I like having that kind of intimacy with you know how they're pulling out this heist and all these kind of social cues they're sending outwards, and then the little messages that are going inwards.
2: Well, and it kind of sets up the bait and switch with Jim, where the whole thing is that and, and and the climax right the whole thing is that the eyes that you see through are a camera right so mm. there's you know there's glasses that are a, an element of plot um and so what Ethan sees is through Jim's eyes where and Jim sets it up that way right where it's like uh- he, like, shoots armor at this way, and then he, like, has fake blood on his hands, and he's and but he's, he's, like, it's so odd how reason. John Boyd is, like, <laughs> looking yeah. up yeah. so that Ethan can't see what he's doing, right? Yeah. But But, again, it it becomes, like, a plot element, and in the climax, where Ethan reaches into his pocket and pulls out the glasses and is, like, I'm not the only one who's seen you alive. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: I thought he was going to say, I'm smarter than you think. <laughs> so I'm wearing glasses. I've
2: got glasses on. Um, <laughs> but I'm told Yeah. So I don't know. I think it does a really good job of setting that up without making it feel like it's a setup, right? Is like uh, introducing yes. this POV element early on, um, I think is really effective. But also in terms of sort of theme, right? The Mission Impossible, this Mission Impossible movie, we can get into the rest of the franchise as it develops, is very much about like trust and who to trust, and secrecy, and betrayal. Um, Because spy thrillers, and erotic thrillers for that matter, which De Palma made a lot of, like they're about trust, right? Like who do you place your trust in? And what is intimacy? You know, you said that word earlier, Alex, and that's what this movie in particular is about, right? The whole... Setting up of Ethan, like framing him for uh, killing everybody on his team and then also framing him for stealing the money, blah, blah, blah. It's all predicated on the idea that he trusts Claire, right? And she can get inside his circle of trust and there can be intimacy between them and that will enable the betrayal to work. Um, That is Jim's whole plan. And so I think that's really interesting. Um, it doesn't turn out to be like a theme very much later as the series goes on. And, you know, it's kind of this element in the series that's been a little bit lost. Like, this is definitely the horniest of the movies, I think is safe <laughs> yeah. to say. Um and, you know, maybe that's the depominus of it. Maybe it's just the era that it was made in. And there used to be more, to be clear. Again, like, definitely listen to that podcast where where David Kept talks about it. But there was supposed to be a legitimate love triangle, like, complete with, like, a sex scene. They were supposed to be having an affair. Um, and that was removed, ultimately. But a lot of the lingering sexual tension remains in this uh, movie. And again, that's sort of the theme of the whole thing.
0: So that's really interesting, because as I was watching it this time, I was thinking about the love triangle and Eric Susser, of our patrons asked specifically about this Ethan Claire, Jim Phelps love triangle and watching it this time. I was like, is there a love triangle because it it's acting like there's a love triangle and there's like definitely some tension. And Jim seems kind of upset at Claire at the end for reasons that I don't quite understand. And, Even shoots her first before he shoots Ethan. And so there seems to be a little bit of like somebody betrayed and covet neighbor's wife and blah, blah, blah. So, like, I get those vibes, but it also felt like kind of exactly what it sounds like you're talking about, where there there was more and it was more explicit and that was removed from the film, whether they shot it or not. Because it feels like they're dancing around something much more substantial than what is in the text of the final cut of the film, to me. And
3: honestly, I, I feel like I need some of that missing material, personally. Like, I, I feel its absence in this movie, where, you know, when when Ethan comes home, I think, was it from seeing that uh, Jim Phelps yes. is alive? Claire's, like, in a sleeping bag, kind of, like, in a corner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <And then laughs> he, like, walks up. It's oddly staged. <laughs> he walks up to her, <laughs> her and she's, like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah like rubbing his hand <laughs> on her face and like kissing mm-hmm. it and then like a face to black as if like it fades sex, to black. sex yeah. scene yeah. imminent yeah. but i just but I, at that stage of the movie i don't know what their relationship is or what like what i'm supposed to want for them uh and yeah i i actually do wish that the movie had a more explicit affair going on love triangle something so that the the payoff would would land with jim phelps right. in the end in the train you know yeah, thou shall not cover your neighbor's wife. It feels like all of that is, it's just like half there, but but doesn't hit in the way that I wish it would.
2: I don't know. It works for me in the sense that, you know, it leaves you space to read between the lines. I think it's, to me in the text, there's enough like attraction between the two of them that like, even if they don't act on it, it's still clear that, she is influencing Ethan's decision making. And that's really the important part, right? Like, you know, she comes back after the Prague operation goes sideways and he's so convinced that he can't trust her because he's just like paranoid. Um, and I can tell because the angles are so Dutch and he's so <laughs> <laughs> he's so dreamlike. There's this sense of like, I've decided to trust her, right? I was worried initially about her being the person who betrayed. How in the world could she have survived? What is she doing here? Then I've decided to trust her. And then we kind of see the eroding of that trust again. Again, in such a way that it's influencing his decision making. And again, it pays off. I admit this is not clear enough in the text, the first or even the 13th time you watch it. But when you come around and you're at the 28th time like me, in the text, you know... Uh Phelps mentions in the train, like, yeah, he knew once he saw the Bible that it was me, um, but he didn't know whether or not it was you, right? There was this sense of, like, he didn't know that it was Claire for sure, and he was hoping it wasn't because there's this attraction. And so I think that there's, like, you can kind of feel your way through it, where you do want them to be together. Why? Because they're the prettiest people you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> <laughs> I want them to be together. Yeah. Why is John Voight in this love triangle? He doesn't right. seem like he okay. belongs
3: he here. One of these things <laughs> is not like the others. To be yeah.
2: frank, yeah. <laughs> uh, but like, there's there's this, you know, you're kind of feeling your way through this love story. You kind of want it to be You kind of want there to be trust. Again, going back to the theme, you kind of want Ethan's faith in her to be paid off, that she really was with him the whole time and that she really did like want to be with him, want what's best for him, was helping him really, and didn't have ulterior motives, which of course turns out not to be true.
1: Yeah, I don't know. For me, I think it's, I, I feel, I get both of what you guys are saying, which is like, I think there's enough there to insinuate a lot and let you read between the lines. But also it's like, this movie is so sort of, vague with its information a lot of the times that there are definitely times where I'm just like yeah but but what is actually happening with these characters what's going on Um, but speaking of what's happening with characters here's a question I want to ask now and I don't think we can answer it now but I think we should answer it over the next several episodes which is who is Ethan Hunt um as a character what say se- what separates him from other spy action movie protagonists what separates him from other tom cruise protagonists um alex daniels asked us what makes him a compelling protagonist in this film as compared to the other installments where we already have the buy-in and i would argue any movie you're making it doesn't matter how many previous ones there have been you need to get us invested in your character for that movie um and i think that like the there's definitely a sense of in every Mission Impossible, in every Tom Cruise movie, probably, it's just like, here's a really driven guy with an obstacle in his way and he's going to do whatever he has to to overcome it, you know? And it's like, that's pretty, that's pretty good. Like, that's pretty compelling for like a blockbuster movie. I'm I'm on board with it. Um, But... You know, we have the trust thing, obviously, throughout this whole franchise and the, and the paranoia thing. But I'm, I'm curious to kind of examine, especially as the franchise finds its footing around the third and fourth film, um, just like who who is Ethan Hunt and what separates him from just like if you had to say if you had to write out a description of him that meant someone would know you're talking about that character and not, you know, James Bond or Jason Bourne or Jack Bauer or any of the JB's um, like what, uh, you know, what would you say? It's interesting. Cause I think it does change over the course of the series.
3: And in this movie, I was really struck by watching it again, how like nineties Tom Cruise, this Tom Cruise is. And there's uh-huh. kind of like a, there's like a cockiness and, just like a Tom Cruise 90s energy that comes through the performance that is different as he gets older and matures in the franchise. And I think part of what makes Ethan Hunt Ethan Hunt is um, there's a little bit of just like a confidence, but like an optimistic confidence. You know, it's not like a dark James Bond confidence. It's, it's kind of like a it's impossible ever going to pull it off you guys. Yeah. You know this kind we're of going to do it. We're going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like positive like reinforcement. Um and and I think I, I get more into the character as the franchise goes on, especially when you get to Mission Possible 3, cuz I think that's where like you said Brian, it, it's about a character who really cares about other characters and is stressing out and is driven to protect people that he loves. And that I think is that really solidifies him as like a hero character in three whereas in this movie he does feel like he's kind of more i don't know like just very smart and driven and competent agent but he's he's kind of like a a cocky 90s guy too When when he's when he's negotiating with um, Max, when he goes to meet Max, you know, in the middle of the movie, um, he's just kind of like grinning a lot and smiling and kind of having fun with playing the role. Like He doesn't seem stressed out. He seems like he's just uh, Tom Cruise having a good time. So, yeah, it's interesting in this one how he feels more stressed and more worried in later installments. And in this mm-hmm. one, he's just kind of like having fun with it a lot of the time.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because I feel like there's also I feel like he's the most frantic in this one also like we already talked mm-hmm. about the moment trisha and the uh, when he's on the phone and like when he's just like they're dead they're out that like he has a fever dream where he sees jim phelps come in <laughs> and he's like then you didn't <laughs> say like that's a ghost sequence so like there there is like a fractured psychology happening here that i feel like does feel i don't know not noir-y but a little bit like something Mm. Of that kind of, Mm. yeah, the the broken trust, what is real, what isn't. And I feel like in those moments where he's like flirting with Max or whatever, that's sort of him doing his secret agent. Well, I got to win over this person and here I'm going to turn on the charm. But he also has that kind of darker, like, yeah, broken side and and the worry. And and I don't
3: know. We, We do seem plenty stressed out in this movie. And, you know, all those De Palma, you know, close up Dutch angles on him thinking things through and just, you know, looking as stressed as ever. So yeah, definitely, definitely very stressed in this movie, but there is also the like the nineties boyish energy coming through too. Yeah. Which is interesting.
0: Yeah.
2: I think I, I agree with everything that you guys have said. Um, and especially the, the direction that he evolves in Alex, as you're pointing out, there's this like lack of self-interest and this like deep care for like, I got to save people. Like, and more than just, like, people generally, I got to save the people I care about. But also, like, he seems to carry just the weight of, like, saving people on his shoulders to to a, a really fascinating extent. James Bond does not care. <laughs> like, right. he does not care if he saves anybody. And that's why there's so much collateral damage um, in, like, a James Bond movie. And And Ethan Hunt deeply cares. And for that reason, going back to, like, the essence of who IMF is and who Ethan Hunt is, secrecy and artfulness have to be, like, the recipe of most of the things. Like, we're here to steal something because we have to take it, but we're not here to take it by brute force. We're here to do it with secrecy and cleverness. And, again, there's, like, this artfulness to the planning. And, And there's an enjoyment in it, as you're pointing out, like... It's almost like, you know, a well-executed IMF mission is it harms no one. It achieves everything, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's kind of the ideal that we're striving toward. And so I, I think that in this movie, the central heist that's all the wire work, I think that's the perfect embodiment of that, right? There's a grace to it. Mm-hmm. And it it does work. They pull it off. It harms no one except for poor that poor worker <laughs> who works in the secure computer room. Uh William Donlow, God bless him. The worst day of his whole life. I think Best about him. Casting
1: ever. I think
2: about yeah, him so much. Face. I'm like, oh sir. Tom Cruise's um physicality and the way that he plays the character has this uh, like almost ballet sort of quality to it, uh, especially when he's doing that wire work in that sequence. But I think, again, that's kind of who the character is, right? There's a pleasure in pulling off a mission, and the ideals of the mission are get what you need, don't hurt anybody you don't need to hurt. And that's why, speaking of character choices and continuing our little, hopefully getting into a little bit more of this central heist, when um, Krieger goes to kill a guard for no reason, you have that beautiful character moment where Ethan grabs his wrist and stops him and is like, there's no need to kill this guy. That's not who we are. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think there is enough packed in here and that's likable, right? Like he could let Max use the disc and get caught, but he doesn't. He helps her get away with it because she has more purpose to serve for him. But also because he has no desire to harm her for its own sake, right? He's not, like, I don't know. There's something about Ethan Hunt that's so not self-interested in any way.
0: He knows that he's going to run into her daughter in, like, four movies. And so he has right. to leave a good impression. You're right.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, so so the central heist, this iconic centerpiece of this movie, there's so much to say about it that we made a movie about we didn't make a movie. We made a video about <laughs> Mission Impossible We made a very movies. short movie. <laughs> yes. uh, and, and heist sequences. And we've talked about on the podcast before, Trisha, as you always say, there's kind of two ways heists can go. You can either know what the plan is and then it's going to go wrong, or you can not know what the plan is and then be surprised when it goes right as an audience. Uh, and I love that this, this heist has a little bit of both right like and that's what i feel like is so like Mm -hmm. special about it is that you get the planning uh you don't really get planning you get the the obstacles done in this really cool sequence where that i feel like has now been spoofed a million times where we're seeing william donlow go through and put his eyes here and say the thing and like if you drop even one little drop on the floor it'll turn red and a little blink and we see the temperature get like it does all of that in such a visual grockable way and all the ways that the story is not understandable the heist stakes yes yes, yes. (laughs) like crystal clear clear gets it uh and so there's so many things that i love but just like you can't you can't do a heist better than this all the way up to like the music the momentum and then everything goes quiet as ethan hunt goes (sighs) in and it's and it's just what more do you want for a movie it's just yeah. it gives me like she
3: does one want a space odyssey vibes you know the, the, <laughs> oh, yeah. the, the design of that room and then just the dramatic
1: mm. loss mm. of sound it, yeah. it, there, there's something really special about it yeah this is one of the best maybe uses of silence in a movie you know we've talked about quiet place or something like that like movies that are sort of built around silence but this is a movie where it's just like nah it's a big dramatic blockbuster and then suddenly it's just like silence and it works so well it just ups the tension um and you know it's also like even if you don't understand the words that they're saying leading up to the heist in terms of just like wait hold on there's what and there's this and there's a thing and there's going to be that and you can't do this it's like there's a decibel meter that is being held and they're watching the whole time right the drop of sweat as soon as it starts to come down like you you can tell in his eyes that it's meaningful right so it's like even if you missed the setup You would still understand the stakes every step of the way because of how the movie is visually telling you that this is incredibly important you know and i think that's really impressive
2: yeah we touched on that in the video that the best heists generally but especially heists in the mission impossible franchise have all these visual signals and cues that like exactly help you track with what's going on and like whether that's maps that are established at the beginning or, you know, this kind of tour of the vault that we get where we see um, the tech going through it. And um, they, all of the best ones, like not only have a visual distinctive look to them, which of course this does in the space and everything, but yeah, then have these cues that you can follow along. And this movie does a great job with Luther Cutting away to him at like the exact moment, having the exact reaction that you're having, mm-hmm. which I was watching it this time and I was like, when the drop of sweat is coming down, like I don't think Luther can see that. Like I don't, I don't. If he's <laughs> it looking, really through, makes sense
0: that he could. Yeah,
2: it doesn't make any sense at all. But he's there holding his breath, where he's like, Ugh. and then that you know Tom Cruise catches it, and you're just like, Luther's like, huh. <laughs> i don't think you could see that but again it's smart <laughs> using that character I,
3: also, I never understood how like where did the hand no one come
2: knows from there's when he's absolutely like not room for it there's not room it for makes, that hand. it makes
1: zero sense it doesn't matter yeah.
2: uh but yeah
1: speaking of zero sense the fact that like they have all this high-tech equipment and like He's just kind of being held by a dude holding a rope. <laughs> right. It's like, <laughs> wait, like you're showing counting... you had a machine yeah. that could hold a, a rope.
3: You're counting on but... Krieger to just like not drop him. Right. But it, it, every <laughs> but
1: like every choice is made for the moment and not for trying to make the most sense in the world. Yeah. yeah. And you know, in our video, we
0: we kind of compared this one and the Rogue Nation heist, and I feel like there are a lot of similarities but for some reason this one is just like to me just so much more edge of my seat and maybe it's for some of those style reasons that we've talked about where like in this world we've seen his team members die like we know right this is a world in which things can go wrong and so it's not just how are they going to do it but there's a bit more for me a sense of are they going to do it like are they actually going to get away with this because i feel like this is a world in which things can go wrong and that's something that i lose a little bit over time as as the franchise goes on where the are they going to do it i'm not wondering so much but the like that goes down but the oh my god how are they going to do it tom cruise what are you doing goes
2: up how are these filmmakers going to pull off this Uh,
1: (laughs) cinematic heist
3: yeah i think part of it too comparing to the rogue nation heist which is you know this big underwater sequence and i think it does leave the groundedness of just like the simplicity of there's a room with all these sensors, you know, sound, heat, you know, touch. And like, you have to just not touch anything and be perfect. That is, I think, actually more suspenseful and more edgy your seat exciting to watch than Tom Cruise in like a big water tank being swirled around rapidly losing his breath. Like I, there's something that we, we start to detach a bit once it gets, too big and like the simple clarity of that room i think actually is more suspenseful and more exciting for that reason
2: and just the visual like just the look of it i think too goes such a long way toward this where it's like it's high contrast right Mm -hmm, he's wearing all black you have like the thin wires coming down like i think about when the knife drops and it's like spinning in slow motion it's got like a mirror blade essentially and like there's just this strong, striking visual style to it that's pure De Palma, and it just works so well. Um, you know, and none of the rest of the, like, the, the more modern movies, um, not that the stunts aren't amazing, they are, but they don't quite have the sort of striking visual style that this does, which, again, is like, it, it's designed, Right. It's been like designed immaculately. The room is designed. The stunt is designed to be an image. Right. It's a, like a piece of artwork. Um, it's not just visually impressive because of what the stunt performer is doing. It's visually impressive just because of the image itself.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, real quick, you know, I was thinking about this um, with the MCU recently, which is we're getting into like multiverse territory and like Thor and Ant-Man, they've just been like, what's like the next, what's the craziest thing we can do now, you know? And it's just like, well, we've done this, so like, well, now what, right? And then you have Spider-Man No Way Home, which is like, let's use this insane idea to build a bunch of really strong character moments, right? Where like the thing you care about most is like, you, you know, going to get into college or whatever, like the, these kinds of things, you know? And I think that that's, that's what is int- will be interesting to talk about with the Mission franchise, which is, yes, the movies get bigger and crazier. But also, I think they usually are trying to find this small character driven moment, you know, and the heist isn't sort of character driven in the way I'm talking about, but in the sense of there's just these really simple things that we have to care about. Right. So it's like, if you're in a water tank and everything's flying around, it's just like, okay, I don't know what this is. Right. But then it's like, oh, this is like a person you really care about. Or, oh, if one drop comes off your head, you have to catch it. You know? And I think that like, that's interesting to follow as movies, as franchises get into movies three and four and five is am i still my problem with john wick right now is like am i still worried about these simple plot things or these simple character things or are you just trying to say what's the next big thing we can do how can we top last time right um and i think i think mission franchise has handled it pretty well so far um and i think it it wavers from movie to movie and now that i'm thinking about it i think the more it goes from sort of these simple things, the less I'm interested in the movie. So we'll talk about that as we go. Um, but I think I think there's sort of been a sense of like trying to keep it grounded in that way, grounded in this sort of plot character simplistic kind of way, even as things get bigger and crazier, but not necessarily during the Tom Cruise stunt sequences. <laughs> that's like a whole different thing. It's like, no, let's have like some popcorn fun for 10 minutes and then we'll go back into like the real plot stuff you care about.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely get it. I mean, it, yeah, I think that's, it, it, they start to feel more like, rides in in that way to me where like i think there is when we talk about groundedness and like the the stunt that tom cruise that is is doing this sequence we're talking about in the original mission impossible was really hard right they talk a lot about like it takes an extreme amount of coordination and like a good sense of your body to balance and hang upside down all these things so it's still a crazy stunt it's maybe not you're gonna die uh, at any given moment, <laughs> like hanging off an airplane, right? Um, but I think that it's a great example of it's familiar enough a situation that I can project myself into it, and mm. so like any given moment, I'm like, oh, I've I've hung upside down, or like, oh yeah, I've tried to balance, or like, oh, I I've get tried see. to
2: be really quiet,
0: <laughs> right. right? Like all these things where you like you have a a visceral understanding of all the elements yeah. uh, that then makes it that much more impressive when you're watching the person do that. And I think overall, the franchise continues to make sure there's some kind of visceral element happening at any given time. But there is a point where it's like, well, I'm, I've never been on a motorcycle and I've never driven off a cliff and I've never been skydiving. And so I, I'm that looks hard uh, and it's fun to watch you do those things, but I don't feel it in the same way I feel it when he's inches off the ground trying to hold his. So it's just really interesting, the the, the scale of, of a stunt and the impact of it in a story.
2: And even the last sequence with the helicopter in the tunnel, like yeah, I find that to be that. really exciting, but it does have that detachment that you're describing, which is like, I've never been on top of a high speed train before personally. Um, and, it, you know, that sequence where it's like the helicopter flies in and there's a lot of like specialized equipment and they're just like having a fist fight on a train. It, it doesn't feel like somehow the stakes feel less. Um, even though the stakes are exactly the same, I guess, like it's still like kind of make or break life or death.
1: I think a lot of times there it's a, it's a sense of we pulled it off, but just barely, And like the helicopter, the the whole train thing feels like a little too easy, but I think it's Ghost Protocol where they like slingshot him onto a building and he like misses and he almost falls off the edge and he has to like clamor to get back on, right? Or Iron Man, like when he's first learning how to use his suit, it's like everything's going terribly (laughs) like the whole time, right? And there's something about that that makes it feel more grounded and more realistic. And and I think action movies, when we are more removed, it's because everything feels like it's just in La La Land and not in this like, oh my God, we just pulled it off.
2: Well, and it's not a heist. I mean, again, going back to what we're here for Mission Impossible movies for, at least me, like, I find those action sequences that's like, it's a chase or it's a Mm. a fist fight in a bathroom or whatever. Like, I find those to be compelling, but they're not the same. (laughs) They're not the same kind of action um, that the heist sequences are. And, you know, I think we point out at the end of the video that often all of drama or like... As a broader lesson for film, it's really fun to watch somebody make a plan, attempt to execute the plan, and then improvise when the plan goes wrong. And when we get those sequences in the Mission Impossible franchise, those are the ones that at least I tend to remember. It's like there was a plan, the plan went badly, and we're watching Ethan Hunt try to pull it out. Or as you say, like we made it, Brian, but just barely, right? Like that's there is like they try to work in and just barely to the helicopter sequence where it almost cuts him several times and like uh, yeah. the end whatever but it doesn't have quite the same like ethan is improvising um right. you know in in sort of the within the walls of this box that we understand
0: yeah well and i feel like you know yeah that 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 Third act train sequence is really fun. As a kid, I loved it. I remember coming home and then hanging off the hood of like my parents' car and pretending like I was on the back of a train. With their
2: windshield wipers, the... Michael? No,
0: not no. You hold on to the hood. Like you get your fingers oh, okay. under the hood and you grab on. Like you gotta hold on to something strong. You're on the back sure. of a train. Right. Um, gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so but <laughs> our episode on speed is available to patrons now. <laughs> But yeah, kind of like we're talking about, the, the scale is bigger. It's not grounded anymore. We're in visual effects land. The visual effects hold Definitely. up really well, I feel great. like. It's kind of insane. But it is like we are we have moved beyond the realm of possibility in a lot of ways. And this the movie does kind of become a bit more of like a conventional action movie, it feels like, in those last 10 minutes or so. Which I think is really fun and like a great climax for this movie. It's just interesting to see that evolution happen and you know there's still a lot of interesting character stuff happening and there's moving parts of max is trying to send the signal and loser's trying to stop it but kittrich is on the train and he's got to watch and he's going to look at the things and jim's going to kill the- like there's still all that stuff happening but it is kind of nice then that it all collapses too and now ethan's just on a train and we get a little action sequence of him trying to and what and genre no shows back up and we get sub antagonist gets to get exploded and all those things. So it's a really fun sequence. It is not a heist and it's interesting that I feel like it, it does kind of signal where a lot of the rest of the franchise goes because there haven't really been other action sequences like that in this movie up to that point, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it is kind of the only action sequence and there's a lot more action in the franchise as it continues. Just
2: interesting. Jean Renault's face. Sorry, just want to shout out this performance <laughs> moment where John Voight is like, for the 18th time, he's like, come on, bring the helicopter. And Jean yeah. Renault's like, okay. Like, he's so tired. He's so over the whole thing. Like, god damn it. Yeah. Um, I love him. Yeah.
0: Cool. Well, why don't we transition into lessons and what lessons we're going to take away from this first entry in the Mission Impossible franchise. Alex, do you want to start us off?
3: Yeah, actually i have a kind of a visual effects lesson from this train sequence um there's something about when tom cruise is on top of that train john void is like crawling with like the mag like handles such or whatever some things, um yeah. yeah the like the power of the wind that is blowing on them and like how much like they seem to be struggling to hold on for dear life is such an important reason why i think the the special effects hold up for us today because it it you feel viscerally that this train is going really freaking fast and it's almost impossible to stay on and i think about like the matrix reloaded one of my least favorite parts of the otherwise like amazing car chase sequence is when it culminates in this like fist fight on top of a semi-truck and there's just no sense of that kind of visceral like Wind energy that would be destabilizing you and making you trip up and fall over and need to hold on for dear life. It's just incredibly static. And I think so many movies have that feeling where you, there's people on a moving vehicle, whether it's a fast and furious or whatever. And it just, you have no sense of just how uh, battered your body would be by just air. <laughs> and I love that this movie just commits 100% to no tom cruise is going to look almost kind of ridiculous how much we're blasting him with air for this sequence and it makes it it makes it feel still like yeah it's the biggest most blockbuster reaction scene in this movie but it still feels like of this movie because it doesn't detach into that total like you know matrix reloaded land and, mm-hmm. and i love i love that about this sequence i think it's it still holds up and it's just really fun yeah
0: yeah No, that's a really good call out. And it's such a good contrast between those two things. Right. Yeah, it's just it's stark. And yeah, I think every time I watch this, I'm like, wait, but are they on a train? Like, like you're saying, like Tom Cruise looks ridiculous because of the amount of air. And I feel like that's the dedication you need to selling the thing. Uh, Yes. Yeah,
1: I think it's a really good lesson. Even the, even the train, like the wide shot pushing into the train, is I think just a completely CG shot. But then it pushes into the window, and like there's a real video happen. Like there's real people, and it's just that kind of thing of like they're they're doing as much as they can to sell what they're trying to sell. Yeah, right. Yeah, cool. Brian, what's your lesson? Um, yeah, I mean it's it's pretty pretty obvious with the heist sequence, uh, but it's just like the more that can go wrong, the better. Yep. you know. And um, and I was specifically thinking about what I'm going to call conflict threads. I don't know if that's a term. I think there's a there's a term about this. I don't know what it is, but but just sort of like what what is unresolved and why are we still watching, you know? And um, we're recording this very shortly after the series finales of Barry and Succession have both aired. (laughs) And those are finales where there's just always a question of what's going on. And sometimes there's like a false victory, but you're like, but there's 20 minutes left. What's going to happen? And then it's like, guess what? Now this, right. And, And I think those false victories, it's like, I'm watching myself go, well, but then why am I, why am I still watching? Like I had, I had a dramatic question and it was answered. So now what? Right. And that's fine for like a minute. And if a thing is trying to like pull the rug out from under your feet, but this, this heist sequence, especially, um, is we know it's not just Don Lowe can't come back in the room. Cause if it was, then when Don Low's out of the room, we're going, okay, it's safe now anything's fine. Right. But it's Don Lowe can't come back in the room. Plus you can't make a sound plus nothing can touch the floor and that's it. Oh wait, there's a rat and <laughs> Tom Cruise is heavy and like this thing is got right. And it's constantly just going. It's like, it's like once one thread is closed or temporarily closed we know there's still four other threads open so we're just constantly going but this thing hasn't happened yet but this thing hasn't happened yet um and i think that's that's really cool and i think that it's that's a lesson for for anything you're writing ever in my opinion is just always make the audience be going what questions do i still have that haven't been answered yet what what still could go wrong what what are the you know the sort of existing conflicts potential conflicts i mean even like the love triangle it's like that's a potential conflict maybe it maybe it will or will not actually become one but uh oh that's a question in my head what's going to happen there right um and uh, and i think it's just it's so important and i think there's so many movies these days where it's just like we have like 20 minute sequences where it's just like i don't like everything i cared about at the beginning of the movie i don't care about anymore and everything i'm going to care about later i don't care about yet and i don't know why i'm watching for for right now you know and i think that happens quite a bit and i think like this heist sequence is like what a good example of just i have a million questions of like what could happen what could go wrong and i'm just always hanging on because as soon as one is like gone then the rest are back and worse worsened etc yeah
0: yeah all the way up to the final moment of that heist right where like they right. finally get Tom Cruise up. Ethan's mm-hmm. there. And then Jean Renault takes the disc and he's like, he says, merci, which is French mm-hmm. for thank you and not messy. Like I thought he did as a child. And was like, <laughs> that was kind of messy. You're right. Why are you saying that now anyway? So like the final moment is, again, that the knife hits the desk. It could have ruined everything, but just barely they got it. So like they're just they're introducing and, and paying off threads to the very last moment, which is really yeah. great. Trisha, what's your lesson?
2: Yeah, I want to talk about Luther, um, who is my favorite thing, Rames, in this. The movie is really smart in that it, like, the way that it builds that character, right? Because the movie knows that it's going to take Claire away from us by the end of the movie. Um, And, again, thematically, the movie is about trust, right? Ethan Hunt's friends, his whole team, that he has a rapport with are all murdered by someone he trusted. And then Claire, the last person in the world that he has left, that he trusts, betrays him, and it's heartbreaking for him, right? And so the movie has to give him someone else to trust, otherwise there's, like, no thematic resolution, right? Imagine if there is no Luther in this movie, And Krieger turns out to be a fake ally opponent. Claire turns out to be a fake ally opponent. And then Ethan Hunt just is left to, like, walk off into the sunset by himself. And there's nothing left to hold on to at that point because thematically that would leave us hollow, right? That's this really dark conclusion to the idea of what IMF is. Um, But it gives us Luther. And it's funny to me that... um, This is where we meet Luther for the first time ever, but it seems like he and Ethan already sort of see each other or know each other. You know, in the moment where we meet Luther the first time, Ethan is kind of teasing him where he's like, well, this is the guy who did this hack. And he's like, there was no evidence that I was involved in that amazing piece of work. Um, There's, again... Ethan, right away, is speaking directly to something that Luther cares about. And what Luther cares about is not money, it's not notoriety, it's just the joy of doing the job well. Um, And there's something that recognizes, like, game recognizes game in them um, that I just think is beautiful and cute, if if I can put it that way. And then, during the heist, we see Luther's reaction when he realizes what they're stealing— and there's the weight of like, no, 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 this is too big, it's too important, we shouldn't actually be doing this. Again, he's doing it sort of for the fun of doing it, but then when he realizes that the stakes are very real, there's something, you know, that's, I'm just going to use the word good guy about that, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to Krieger, right, where we know Krieger's in it for the money. And so later on, when Ethan gives Luther the disc to hold on to, said you know, why would you trust me? Right. We just met 20 minutes ago in the same movie. Um, and he has a really good reason. If you knew what you were stealing, you never would have done it. There's a sense of trust, again, that's already being established. And it leaves Ethan, somebody at the end to like walk off into the sunset with in sort of a Casablanca kind of way. And I, I just think that's so important. I just think there's no franchise without Luther. And I love the way that the character is written. I love the way that Ving Rhames plays him. And the moments are not big. They don't take up a lot of time, right? It's not like you have to go out of your way to create a whole subplot for Luther. You don't. It's just artfully incorporated into the plot that's already here. And it's well, like, observed and just added with again like a very deft sort of hand and and that's i think part of the big reason why we have a franchise like there's nowhere for ethan hunt to go after this if there's no luther
1: Mm mm-hmm yeah, Luther definitely. You know, if not in every movie, he is the sort of the the soul of of the franchise. You know, he's mm-hmm. and he and I think he is doing that thing I'm talking about of we want to care about these characters and their relationships. You know, so he's like the proxy for Jules in Ghost Protocol, and then you know he comes back in and in, in the Macquarie movies, and it's sort of like the more you're going, oh, these are, this is a family, um, you know, to quote another big action franchise. Um, <laughs> but but you genuinely are going, okay, but I really care about these characters now and their relationships. And I think I think specifically Ethan and Luther in this movie is our first kind of glimpse into that as a as a running theme throughout the franchise. Mm. Yeah.
0: Game recognizes game. I like that. I don't know it's not the right summary for your lesson, but that's the one that I'm going to take away. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds cool. Um. Yeah. I. So my lesson is kind of about how the buildup can make or break a thing, and so I think it's obvious the way we talked about the heist that you know the the centerpiece, the most exciting, memorable section of your heist action movie can be a quiet scene where a man is dangling from a wire, and that can put people on the edge of their seats, depending on the buildup and the execution of such buildup. Um, and so we've kind of already talked about all that. I was thinking about, we mentioned at the beginning wanting to talk about the the scene where Jim Phelps shows up in London and oh, then yeah. there's the conversation with Ethan where it gets really confusing. And I feel like that's uh, kind of an example of the buildup, not doing the work needed to prepare mm-hmm. the audience for going on that ride. Cause I like in theory, what it's doing is really interesting where Jim Phelps is trying to trick Ethan, but Ethan is actually one step ahead and knows that Jim is lying. And so, you know, Jim is performing for Ethan, but Ethan is performing back to Jim while we're seeing inside of Ethan's head as he's putting together how Jim might've done it. But Ethan's also trying to figure out if Claire was part of it. So he's trying, he's like adding new elements and the puzzle pieces are moving while we're in his head while there's this complex dance happening. So it's, It's really cool once you know all of that is going on. But if you don't, it's just puzzling and distancing and confusing and and, uh, weird. And so just an interesting example from this movie where if because the buildup isn't right, text structure, plot wise, writing wise, also directing, like all, all the pieces I feel like don't quite serve as the right inputs for that moment as opposed to the heist where all of the inputs are exactly right to make something super simple be super compelling
1: you're making me think like man i wish the the rogue nation underwater heist if tom cruise is like my big thing is i'm going to hold my breath in this movie it'd be like okay cool we're gonna put a still camera in a six by six by six tank of water and we're just going to be in that sequence with you holding your breath the entire time. And we're going to have all these beats, you know, you're going to mix up the cards, you're going to drop the things and everything like that. And the only way you can get out is if you, you know, uh, put the right card in because then that's going to unlock the thing to get your air back. And like, we could have had, yeah, we could have had like the mission impossible one heist again, you know, with that sort of like the simplicity is the, is what is actually bringing in the tension and not the, big bombastic blockbuster stuff, which is also super fun and why we still love this franchise. But yeah.
2: I would like listeners, uh, patrons uh, on the Discord and or just people on Twitter, tell me how you would have set up the reveal that Jim is the one. Like, I want to know how this could work because I'm sitting here thinking and I'm like, we see the moment with the Gideon Bible earlier and maybe that's the moment where we realize that it's him because it certainly the movie makes something of it where it's like we get the zoom in and it's like, Ethan's like, Oh my God, it's the Drake hotel. And we hear the flashback, like Drake hotel, Chicago. Um, okay. We have that. Um, but we still don't know how it was pulled off until we get this like, you know, flashback sequence in Ethan's mind where he's imagining Jim pulling it off. But if you were going to do the Jim reveal, how would it work where it really feels like, a true reveal that truly pays off and isn't confusing and also falls at the right point in the movie and without tipping your hand too early. So let's brainstorm this. Let's workshop it, everybody. Uh, (laughs) Hit me up on Twitter. We'll get on the discord and fix it Um, because it is just so confusing. (laughs) And I really feel like it could have been done more elegantly. Not that it's not cool, but it just feels like there was probably another way.
3: Even like literally the reveal itself, like in like the phone booth circle or whatever. When he just kind of like the back, it's, oh, he almost feels like an animatronic. Uh-huh. He like backs up and then like moves into his booth. Just like what? What am I looking at? Is this real? If it happened,
2: also it's wild logically. Because Ethan was not supposed to be there. It's just that he was like watching TV and he saw that Kittredge arrested his mom and his uncle. And then like, he like walks to the train station to call and then there's Jim. And he's genuinely like, it's...
0: Well, and this time I was like, well, so then did Claire tell Jim that, oh, Ethan's going there? But no, because then Claire doesn't know that Ethan knows that Jim is alive or that like...
3: Well, and Jim starts off their conversation with a long explanation of like, I put this together and this together and this together to know you would be here in London you know, it's, it's all a little strange. Yeah. It's confusing. Like, we're going
2: to fix it. Hop on the Discord. <laughs> Let's get on social media. Let's sort it out, everybody. Yeah.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, what else have you guys been watching recently? Alex, what have you been watching recently? So,
3: uh for Memorial Day weekend, uh I was visiting home and I wanted to go see a movie with my brother, and uh I realized that Air was still playing in theaters, and I had not seen it yet. I am not a sports person. I'm not a shoe person uh but <laughs> but it was a really it was a really fun lovely movie like it, it's fun seeing these kind of like a yeah, ben affleck matt damon you know team ups happening again you know like the last duel and air just really good solid like adult drama movies that are well made but you know i think we're used to them being like direct to streamer kind of genres nowadays. Like a, like air does feel like a movie that would just be direct to streaming, but I liked seeing it in a theater with an audience. It was really nice to have that communal experience. And it's just a really fun uh, kind of corporate success story, basically. Like a, like a they really do a great job of setting up Matt Damon's character as just this guy who is really good at his job and like really wants to like do something special with his corporate job. And and it makes you kind of believe in like the the brand, you know, like in, in, in like a not uh, it, in, in genuine way, like like this was this is actually like a creative, artistic endeavor by these kind of like Nike upstart guys and they pull it off and you are cheering for them by the end of the movie, which I never thought I would do in a movie about a shoe that made a lot of money. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's really well done and uh, I recommend it air. Oh, and Viola Davis is fantastic. She's oh, just, yeah. She's just so great. That's great.
0: Yeah. Cool. Trisha, what have you been watching recently?
2: Yes, yeah, so I'm so excited that there's a movie that I saw at Sundance that is now distributed, and you guys can see it. It's not streaming yet, so you probably have to hike down to your local independent theater to go see it, which you should do anyway. Just for the record, uh, but uh, Nicole Holofcener's Center's new movie, "You Hurt My Feelings," is out now, uh, starring Julia Louis Dreyfus. It's wonderful. Um, it's really funny. Nicole Center. I highlighted a a film of hers a while back called Please Give that I really enjoyed. She makes these um, very carefully studied situational dramedies. And they're usually like so specifically about like rich white people in New York. And it's like, but they're so like sharply observed and perfectly cringy where everyone is just being so performative and trying to act the right way that rich white people in New York are supposed to be acting in these very difficult situations. So this movie is about Julie Lewis dreyfus is a, plays a novelist and she's working on her next book. She's been working on it for years and her husband, Tobias Menzies, uh, she overhears him talking and he's been telling her how great he thinks her new novel is for like literally years And she overhears him saying he does not like it at all to somebody else. And it just sends her into this absolute spiral um, about her (laughs) marriage, about her life, about like, who can I trust? What does anything mean? Like, um, and it's just like a highly specific problem that is unique to creative people of a certain caliber uh, or certain means. We can put it that way. Who can hang their identities on their creative work and like all this stuff. It's, it's fascinating. It's really right. Julie Lou Dreyfus is hilarious in it. It was a movie I really enjoyed at Sundance. So you can now go check it out. It's called You Hurt My Feelings.
1: Sounds great. Brian, what have you been watching? Uh, yeah, I watched uh, Beef on Netflix. Oh, which nice. Has been yeah. yeah getting getting quite a lot of of talk. And man, I can't think of the last time I watched something where I was like so excited to keep watching it. it We're just like, oh, we got we have time what, one more episode. Um, and it, it's Stephen Yun and Ali Wong, and basically the whole inciting incident is just they get in this like road rage accident that neither one of them wants to let up on, and then they just it just escalates from there, and escalates over many episodes of just like what how can the one person unup their sort of revenge on the other but then it gets into more of like a character study and the other the the more minor characters become you know uh, at the forefront and it's a really cool example of how to design characters to be the perfect foil for each other both as sort of co-antagonists but also Exactly what that person needs in their life, right? So, sort of the the collateral thing, or something, or it's just like, yeah, you you're the worst person I could possibly meet, and maybe that's also exactly who I need to meet. Um, and and that sort of is explored as these characters kind of challenge each other and are evolve over the course of the series. So, I I really loved it, and I recommend it if you haven't checked it out yet.
2: It is stressful, though.
1: So yes,
2: give a lot of stress in your life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just be warned.
0: Bear that in mind. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, that's cool to hear. I watched the first episode and then got distracted by other stuff and didn't continue, but I wasn't sold on the first episode. But I he- keep going. Here-
2: yeah, I, keep I, going.
0: I got more and more sold the more I watched okay. it.
2: Even I watched it, Michael.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cool. Well, it's interesting because that, that first episode actually reminded me of what I saw recently, which is Emily the Criminal, which is the right. Aubrey Plaza movie from 2022. It's this like crime thriller about this character has lots of student debts and so sort of like <laughs> slowly finds herself living a life of, of crime and you kind of watch that uh, kind of unfold and see so her kind of get sucked in and it, you know it happens over a very short time frame on a very small scale it's very character centric uh, and Aber Plaza is great in it and I think is probably the reason the movie is as watchable as it is it feels like a movie that like it feels like an old like a movie that would have come out in like the 2000s where it's like an indie movie and like mm-hmm. like a classic indie movie it hits all the beats it does all the things really well and so it feels instructive in that way but also left me wanting like ah but it's not this is exactly the sum of its parts and i wanted something a little magical more and the the magical part that is there is a who is really really great and all the performances actually the the male counterpart in it is very charming and I was one over and I was like who is this and okay um so overall really interesting enjoyable movie uh that I recommend watching partially just for, for her performance but also to see it's a movie where that's good but you can see the beats and they're accessible and so if you want to study something or see examples of like oh yeah this is how you would do one of these movies it very much does the things that you would do uh and it was enjoyable, So. Emily the Criminal.
2: Nice. Yeah.
0: Cool. Well, this has been our conversation about Mission Impossible, the beginning of our deep dive into the whole franchise leading up to Dead Reckoning. We will be back next week with a patron-exclusive episode on either Asteroid City or Elemental, as to be determined by the patrons. Uh, As of this recording, we don't know uh, which one has one or not. Um, Very excited to see where that is. But if you want to influence things like which movies we're talking about in the future, for example, should we talk about Barbie or Oppenheimer in our season finale, you can head to the Beyond Screenplay Patreon and vote because that vote is ongoing and uh, tracking the back and forth on that is, yeah. very, very fascinating. I want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons for making this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major, and our editors, Donovan Bullen, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayetos. All of Twitter handles turn in the show notes. Send us a tweet, say hi, talk to Trisha about how we, you should reveal the Jim Phelps thing on Twitter <laughs> and on Discord, uh, and we will see you. Uh, patrons in the next episode on either Asteroid City or Elemental and the rest of you next next week for Missions Impossible 3 and 4. We'll see you then. Bye everybody. Bye bye. Bye.